0: And thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast. Episode 241, Air Raid, Pearl Harbor. This is no drill. Last time, we saw the American servicemen and women respond to the first Japanese attack wave at Kaneohe Bay Naval Air Station, northeast of Ford Island, on Oahu's east coast. Bellows Field, just south of it and at the Marines' mooring mast field at Iwa, 7 miles or 11 kilometers west of Pearl Harbor. Of those responses, some had been heroic, others, not so much. Still, the latter can hardly be blamed. First, there was the element of surprise and shock, but there was also a bit of American arrogance. Just like the men back in Washington advising the President felt relatively safe in pushing Japan around diplomatically, it was the President who was one of the first to realize the Japanese Empire had decided to push back. As for the Japanese pilots zooming all over Oahu and, frankly, enjoying the experience of besting the Americans as well as the pride that comes from an operation that has gone off nearly perfectly, they had to be asking themselves, where were the American carriers? The answer, at least for the USS Enterprise, was 215 miles, or 346 kilometers, west of Oahu. Having unloaded for Marine Fighter Attack Squadron 211, 12 of its 24 F-4F-3 Wildcats, and 13 of its 29 pilots. The Enterprise, the 7th U.S. naval vessel to bear that name, but now called the Big E, was en route back to Oahu with an expected arrival date of December 6th. However, as Admiral William Bull Halsey In command of Carrier Division 2, a task force centered around Enterprise was not one to waste an opportunity to gain his men experience. He had the carrier towed. But soon after, the line snapped and became wrapped around the propeller shaft. Between removing that and the bad weather, the Enterprise was just over a day behind schedule. An hour after dawn on December 7th, The Enterprise had launched 18 Douglas Dauntless SBD-2s and 3s. The SBD, or Scout Bomber Douglas, had only been in operation for just over a year and was a versatile aircraft. As the carrier's main plane, it could act as a scout and or bomber. It had the necessary long range, handled well, was maneuverable, could carry a significant amount of bombs, but what would become its main attribute, at least for the pilots, was its armament, offensive and defensive. Officially, SBD meant Scout Bomber Douglas, but after the Battle of Midway, where the Dauntless more than did its part against the Japanese carriers, the letters were translated to mean slow but deadly. The Dauntlesses of Scouting and Bombing Squadron 6 were patrolling in pairs, being led by Lieutenant Commander Halstead Hopping. As they patrolled to the southwest of Oahu, Halsey ordered them to land on Ford Island, refuel, make another search, and only then return to the Enterprise. This was his way of expanding their search area and allowing the pilots and the crews at Ford to get more practice. The SPD had a crew of two, the pilot and his radio man/gunner who sat in the rear the latter seat could make a full rotation thus he could point his machine gun in any direction however as some of those on the search were in sbd3s their firepower had been upgraded the pilot had command of two 50 caliber machine guns in the nose while the rear seat now had two 30 caliber guns As the 18 planes of Enterprise made their way east to Oahu, they would find waiting for them the same hectic conditions that had been present for the stripped-down B-17s, coming from California. As they got closer, smoke could be seen in the skies over Oahu. That was when Lieutenant Commander Hopping picked up a radio message that read, Do not attack me. This is 6 Baker 3, an American pilot. There was clearly fear in the man's voice, then Hopping heard him tell his gunner to ready the inflatable boat as they were heading for the waves below. Another American pilot who was in proximity to 6 Baker 3 but did not hear the transmission was Ensign Frederick Weber, the frantic pilot's wingman. Weber was to the right and over the distressed aircraft, but from his position and the radio silence... Webber did not focus on the other plane as much as he could have. As Weber came within 25 miles, or 40 kilometers, of Oahu, he saw nearby, but above himself, a group of planes. Assuming that they were the American Army Air Corps, he ignored them. They were, in fact, dive bombers from the first attack wave, making their way back to their carriers. But that was when Weber noticed that 6 Baker 3, ensign Manuel Gonzalez, had disappeared. Weber circled around a few times and eventually saw another plane ahead of him, on the same course. This, he assumed, was Gonzalez, who, somehow, got ahead of him. So Weber poured on the speed in order to catch up. But when he was still two thousand yards away, the other pilot reacted violently, turning his aircraft. That was when Webber saw the meatballs on the wings. Figuring that this Zero had downed his friend and that he was next, Webber dove, turned away, and hugged the waves, hoping he was not followed. The Douglas was a sturdy craft, but no match for a Zero. One of the last Dauntlesses to take off from Enterprise, that dawn, was being flown by Lieutenant Commander Howard Brigham Young. As he passed over the southwestern shoreline of Oahu, he immediately started receiving fire from the ground, as well from a monoplane fighter behind him. In response, young dove for the ground, or in airman parlance, hit the deck. The wingman following him, piloted by Perry Teef, with a gunner by the name of Jinx, was hit several times, but the tough plane flew on. Teef also dove to skim the earth. Young tried to radio Ford Island, but by then, all hell was breaking loose along Battleship Row. Hence his call went unanswered. At that moment, squadron leader Hopping radioed his team that Oahu was under attack. But like the pilot Weber before, hardly any of his squadron heard him. Hopping successfully landed at Ford Island, but was shot at during his entire approach. Another pair of Dauntlesses, flown by Ensign Edward Deacon and Ensign William Roberts, had crossed over Oahu's southwestern corner at 8.33 a.m. They had heard their fellow pilot Gonzalez's last transmission, so rose to 1,000 feet, assuming this would give them time to form a plan. As Hickam Field, south of Battleship Row, was now obscured by smoke coming from the battleships, they made for Ewa Field to the west-southwest of Ford Island. Again, the panicked Americans on the ground opened up on the two planes with 50-caliber and 20-millimeter gunfire. Roberts was able to land and then proceeded to yell at his would-be killers. But before he could begin tearing into the gunman, his wingman, Deacon's engine, was hit and began to fail. Deacon managed to land just off the coast. The plane began to sink down below the waves, but amazingly, both men were unhurt. That is, until men patrolling the beach started firing at them. Both were hit, but managed to come ashore and were taken to the hospital, but only after chewing out the men who had wounded them. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. As for the Dauntless being flown by Ensign John Voke along with his radio man Sidney Pierce, it collided mid-air with a Japanese bomber. As they were too low for parachutes, both men died when they reached the ground. Another pair of American SBDs flown by Lieutenant Clarence Dickinson and Ensign John McCarthy climbed to 4,000 feet. From up there, they hoped to get a better idea of the situation. But they were soon set upon by two Zeros who were on their way to the harbor. McCarthy tried to maneuver to get a solid bead on one of the enemy planes, but was outdone in this. Soon, his plane was being shot up, which caused his engine to ignite. Lieutenant Dickinson watched his partner's plane go down and smash into the earth. But then Dickinson gave out a shout when he saw a parachute open up. McCarthy had bailed out just in time. One of the enemy's bullets had shattered his leg, but he would survive this day. However, his radio man, gunner third class Mitchell Kahn, went down with the plane. Now it was Lieutenant Dickinson's turn to get the attention of the enemy zeros. However, to make it worse, his pursuer was joined by at least three other planes. His Dauntless took a hit, but kept going. Dickinson told his gunner, First Class William Miller, he thought they were going to have to bail out. But all Dickinson heard in response was the strangest exhalation over the radio. Soon, the left fuel tank was on fire. Dickinson confirmed that they would have to bail out. But no response came from Miller. As Dickinson's parachute landed near Iwa Field, he had the rare fortune not only to be left alone by the Japanese, but also by his American comrades on the ground. The Marines were getting used to seeing their fellow countrymen get the worst of a dogfight and then float to the ground. As for Radio Man Gunner First Class William Miller, who never left the doomed aircraft, his four-year tour was to end in a few days. As for the remaining seven SBDs from Enterprise, as they neared the west coast of Oahu, overhead they saw enemy fighter planes. Again, as their planes were no match for the Zeros, the Americans stayed low. But now, all the smoke, strange radio conversation, and the smell of gunpowder, made sense. Oahu had been attacked. Japan was at war with the United States. Figuring that Ford Island would be ground zero of the sneak attack, the American pilots decided to land at Iwa. But the Marines there told them to get the hell out of here, that most of their planes were now wrecked. If the Japanese came back, their planes would be next. So the seven planes took off again, but as they approached Fort Island, a destroyer opened up on them with its fifty and thirty caliber guns. Taking some hits, the pilots turned around and landed, again, at Iwa. If the Japanese did come back, they would just have to take their chances. An hour and forty five minutes into the attack, American casualties were thus, a hundred and sixty three. Killed, 336 wounded, with 43 unaccounted for. As for the island's aircraft, its offensive power, 157 were beyond hope of repair, with 74 fixable in time. As for Admiral Halsey's Scouting and Bomber Squadrons 6, 6 of the 18 planes that had been launched that morning were lost, 8 of their crew were gone, and two more were wounded. As for Enterprise's position west of Oahu, it was safely out of the way of the attack. But that's not where a warship is supposed to be. At 8 a.m., the crew of the Enterprise was called to General Quarters. The men were told the island was being attacked by the Japanese. Hence, when they saw dots in the sky over the island go crashing down, they cheered, thinking these were enemy planes, but the vast majority were not. As previously covered, the various squadrons of the first Japanese attack wave were disappointed not to find any of the three carriers on the north side of Ford Island. Still, on that morning of December seventh, 1941, there were 96 ships in harbor. But the prize targets, of course, were the mighty vessels of Battleship Row. The men aboard the eight battleships were just rising. Some had plans, others would lie the day away. Also covered, the Japanese torpedo bombers approached the dreadnoughts from three directions, the west, the south, right up the harbor's entrance along the southeast lock, and from the southeast. Ensign Donald Korn aboard the Riley on the northwest side of Fort Island, spotted the planes coming from the northwest. Seaman Red Pressler of the Arizona, the second-to-last battleship on the right of Battleship Row, saw the planes coming from the east, and Frank Handler, a quartermaster, watched as the planes flew up the southeast lock. But it was signalman Charles Flood, aboard the light cruiser Helena, moored at 1010 Dockyard just south of the left end of Battleship Row that caught sight of them all. It reminded him of his time in Shanghai in 1932, when the Japanese first attacked the city. These sightings were just before 7.55 a.m. As for the men on each battleship who were preparing to play the Star-Spangled Banner, had seen this so many times before that none of them took a second look at the approaching planes. One of the first torpedo planes to reach Battleship Row launched its weapon at the Arizona. As it missed, the nearby brass band of the Nevada to the Arizona's right continued playing. However, that pilot then turned around and strafed the musicians on the Nevada. Only then did they scatter. A witness to all this, a sailor on the thus far lucky Arizona, told a friend, this is the best goddamn drill the Army Air Force has ever put on. The planes continued coming at Battleship Row. Lieutenant Commander Logan Ramsey, an operations officer, was at home that morning of December 7th. His home was hard upon the present location of the battleship Arizona, again the second to last ship on the right side. Earlier that morning his phone rang, waking the family. He was informed that a sub had been sunk just outside the harbor net. Ramsey's response was, "Are you sure?" Still, he threw on a Aloha shirt, some slacks, and raced out the door. But before he reached his destination, he saw a lone plane fly very low over their heads. This was called flat-hatting, and it was illegal, as it endangered the lives of those on the ground. Ramsey waited for the plane to turn, so he could get its number, and he noticed the staff duty officer doing the same thing. Ramsey marked the look of consternation on the man's face. This pilot would be grounded for some time. However, when the plane came out of its dive... Their eyes were drawn not to the number on the side, but the pair of red dots on its wings. Before either could react, the delayed action bomb, dropped by the pilot, that they did not notice, went off. Ramsey said to the staff duty officer, Never mind, it's a jab. Then he ran into the radio room and had the following message sent out, in plain English and on all frequencies. Air Raid. Pearl Harbor. This is no drill. As covered previously, the older battleship, Utah, was in dock, where the carriers would normally go, on the northwest side of Ford Island. And the Japanese already knew this from their spy. Hence, squadron leader Lieutenant Matsumura told his men not to waste their ordnance on the aged vessel. But his pilots were so keyed up, by their success of achieving surprise, and by their desire to sink a carrier, that they let loose with twenty-seven torpedoes, the Utah would, in the words of one of its crew, go turtle up in only eight minutes. Aboard Utah, pharmacist mate second class Lee Sausi recalled, "When the first bombs dropped on the hangars at Ford Island, I thought those guys are missing us by a mile." as in, this was another exercise, and that, one, they had missed the ship completely, and, two, someone had screwed up royally by putting live bombs on that plane. Salci could not even dream that they were really under attack, because it was, again, in his own words, too incredible, simply beyond imagination. A Utah's mess attendant, second class, Clark Simmons, was in the captain's cabin serving two officers when the ship was first attacked. They felt the ship lift with the bomb and then began to list. That was when the bugler blew the call for abandon ship. Simmons went through the porthole, which had a diameter of about 18 inches, but he squeezed through with a life jacket in his hand. And that life jacket saved his life as Simmons was hit in the head, a shoulder, and a leg by strafing planes. Going back to Sousey, he had been given a May West by an officer, but then he thought about all the ammunition on board the ship. He knew it was only a matter of time before all that went off, so he wanted to be as far away as possible, as fast as possible. Throwing down the vest, he slid down the exposed hull of the ship, itself covered with barnacles, into the water. He spotted a motor launch picking up survivors and thought that a vessel like that, full of men, would make a tempting target. So he turned away from it and began to swam to Ford Island. Just then, another plane came down and strafed in between himself and the boat. He looked up, saw the red dots on the plain, and only then realized it was the Japanese. Someone had yelled as they were exiting the ship, How did the Germans get this far out? But both thoughts were quickly pushed aside as Sousie swam for the shore. U.S. Army Lieutenant General Walter Short, the commanding officer of the Hawaiian Department, was at home reading the newspaper and having breakfast with his wife. The only thing on his agenda that day was a golf game with Admiral Husband Kimmel, so the general took his time. But as the minutes passed by, he heard more and more planes flying around, and then explosions. Surely this was another drill. Still, he would go outside and see how things were unfolding. Going out to his back porch, the general saw numerous pillars of smoke, from different locations. This was no drill. In all haste, he made his way to his office. General Short first ran into intelligence officer Lieutenant Colonel George Bicknell. The general asked, what's going on out there? Bicknell was honest enough to say he wasn't sure, and brave enough to say, but I just saw two battleships sunk. Short shot back, that's ridiculous. It was then that Chief of Staff Colonel Walter Phillips told Short, It was the real thing. The time was about eight o three a.m. The general's reply was to activate alert number three. By eight ten a.m., that status change was making its way throughout the entire island. Alert number three altered the soldiers' focus from looking out for saboteurs to be ready to repel an armed invasion which didn't change the fact that much of the arms and ammunition were locked away. Meanwhile, the general and his command staff went to the Army's underground location at Aliamanu Crater in Honolulu on the southern coast. Just before this, as we have seen, 3rd Torpedo Attack Unit Commander Lieutenant Takashi Nagai sent his torpedo at the mine layer Oglala at 7.57 a.m. from 500 yards away. The Oglala was next to the Helena at 1010 Dry Dock, south of Battleship Row. The ship's crew had no choice but to watch the deadly fish approach them. As it reached the side, the crew braced themselves. But nothing happened at that second. Nagai had assumed that the Oglala was a battleship because right behind it was the Helena, thus its silhouette looked larger. So the ship's hull was not down in the water as much as a battleship's would have been. Still, the weapon then arose enough to hit the Helena, damaging both ships. Up until the enemy plane released its torpedo, the men aboard the Aglala had assumed, as had so many that morning, that this was just another drill. Now that they knew better, fear and anger overtook them. As the succeeding planes flew over, crews from both ships started throwing potatoes and wrenches into the air to try to hit the enemy's propeller, which did not outdo a master sergeant, who, following the strafing planes as best he could on his bicycle, all the while shot at them with his pistol. The Helena was the first American ship to fire back at the attacking Japanese planes. At almost the same time, 7.55 a.m., the attack of the torpedo bombers up the southeast Loch commenced. As the 12 planes from the Akaki came up from the south, the crews of the Tautog, a Tambor-class submarine, launched the year before, and the Clemson-class destroyer Holbert launched in 1919 had their 30 and 50 caliber machine guns blazing away as they were both moored at the island's submarine base on the right side of the lock the men doing the shooting were in a perfect position the tautog crew brought down one of the planes in the second pass at battleship row and would bring down a second plane later that morning Again, as the torpedo bombers had to slow down and make a fixed approach at the battleships, the American gunners took advantage of this. Across from the sub Tautog and the destroyer Holbert, on the left-hand, or southern, side of the southeast lock, was the heavy cruiser New Orleans. She and her sister ship, the USS San Francisco, were in dock, both undergoing machinery repairs. Down in the New Orleans hole was Lieutenant Hal M. Forgey, the heavy cruiser's chaplain. When the bombs had first landed on the southern end of Ford Island, prompting Lieutenant Commander Logan Ramsey to send the open radio message, Air Raid Pearl Harbor, This Is No Drill, the sound of those bombs brought Forgey out of his reverie. He had been thinking through his sermon for that morning when his cruiser was shaken by the blast. Yet he thought a tug had come alongside. Forgy was now planning on how best to explain to the officer of the deck that Sundays were not the best days to test the general alarm. But that's when he heard the message, all hands to battle stations, all hands to battle stations, this is no drill. Forgy ran for his battle station, which was the sick bay. As the New Orleans had been getting its power from the dock, when the anti-aircraft battery started engaging the planes overhead, the ship's response was admirable, if limited. But then the power from the dock went out. Now the men would have to bring up the shells, just under 100 pounds, to the guns, load, aim, and fire, manually. It wasn't long before Chaplain Forgy watched some of the ship's crew form a line to pass the ammo from below to the batteries on top. As he later explained, a chaplain cannot fire a gun or take material part in a war. Yet he knew their lives were in danger, so he offered what assistance he could. Walking along the human chain as they fed the guns that kept their chances of surviving alive, he touched each man on the back and said, praise the Lord, and pass the ammunition. As Lieutenant Woodhead later reflected, I know it helped me a lot, too. To the northwest of Ford Island, moored along with three other destroyers in the middle lock, the USS Breeze also shot down a plane that morning. As it happened, the plane landed in the water near the ship, and the crew could see that the pilot was still alive. So a few of the crew were loaded onto a whaleboat and began to make their way to the downed man. But then the man in the water put his hand under his vest, and one of the men on the approaching vessel assumed he was going for a gun, so shot the pilot. Still, his body was taken on board. The sailor who did the shooting was warned that he would be court-martialed, but no such judgment ever took place, not in the aftermath of the tragedy that was Pearl Harbor.